Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. We start with breaking news as the U.S. retaliation for the deaths of three American soldiers is underway tonight. The U.S. hitting more than 85 targets in Iraq and Syria against Iranian-backed militias. B-1 bombers flying nonstop from an Air Force base in Texas, ultimately striking seven facilities in a mission that the White House says was, was successful, but also not over yet. It is without a doubt a sharp escalation of the war in the Middle East. Those bombers in the air today as President Biden was attending the dignified transfer for those three soldiers at Dover Air Force Base. We start with team coverage tonight. Orrin Lieberman is at the Pentagon, retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton in Washington, and Nick Robertson is in Tel Aviv. Orrin, let me start with you because obviously we are hearing from the Pentagon confirming these strikes, laying out their rationale. What's the latest that you're learning tonight? The U.S. carrying out strikes across seven different locations in Iraq and Syria, to be more precise. Four in Syria, three in Iraq, going after not specifically Iran. The U.S. didn't strike directly in Iran in this case, but going after Iranian-backed militias and Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, the elite part of the IRGC, trying to send a message not only to Iran, but also to these militias that the attacks on the U.S. forces in the region have gone way too far, including especially that attack that killed three U.S. service members and wounded scores more in Jordan on Sunday. The response now beginning to play out, coming through five days later as the U.S. carries out strikes on 85 targets, including not only weapons and the U.S. saying there were secondary explosions at some of these facilities, indicating weapons were hit, but also command and control centers, intelligence centers, and much, much more. This is at least an order of magnitude larger than the strikes we've seen the U.S. take in Iraq and Syria over the course of the past few months. It's also, I should note, the first time we have seen the U.S. strike both countries at the same time, with very much the possibility of more expected, perhaps in the coming days. President Joe Biden strongly suggested this was just the beginning, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin put it even more bluntly in a statement after the strikes. He said, this is the start of our response. The president has directed additional actions to hold the IRGC and affiliated militias accountable for their attacks on U.S. and coalition forces. These will unfold at times and places of our choosing. Austin very much saying there will be more here and we will wait to see how that looks, how that unfolds. But this, a very strong first message, not only in the target and the amount of strikes here, but also in the platforms used. B-1 heavy bombers 
much more significant in terms of the payload and the bombs they're able to carry, the missiles as well, than the fighter jets the U.S. normally uses to carry out these sorts of strikes. Following that, in a briefing, the U.S. says they're confident in the targets they hit and the effect that the strikes have had. They say there are likely uh, members of the militia who were killed here, but for that, we'll, we'll need a battle, battle damage assessment, which could, which could start to come together once it's daytime in the Middle East, Caitlin. Okay, and we'll stand by for that. Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon, thank you. Up next to Nick Robertson, who is live in Tel Aviv tonight. Nick, obviously Iran notably said this week, after those three soldiers were killed last Sunday, that they did not want war. The U.S. was clearly trying to send a message to Iran with this. So what do we know about how they're responding? Well, we don't have any indication from the Iranians per se yet. Uh, However, I think it's worth noting as well that the president of Iran also said in that same statement that they would deal with bullies um, authoritatively and with strength. So I think the indication is that the Iranians will choose to hit back through their proxies, undoubtedly. Indeed, one of those proxies this evening, just minutes before the strikes took place, Khatib Hezbollah in Iraq said that they were waiting for all orders. Uh, Their orders, um, clearly the implication seems to be that they're waiting for their orders from Iran. They're in Iran-backed proxy. So that that would be a reasonable conclusion. But we don't have anything from, uh, from Iranian officials about this yet. But it's very clear that there have been strikes on some of these targets previously, not as devastating as the ones we've witnessed tonight. Um, but they, what we have seen is these militias have plenty of people. They'll get more weapons. They believe that they're in a fight with the United States. Iran may not be, but the, uh, but they are through their proxies, and, and their proxies believe they're engaged in that fight with um, uh, with the United States. So they, they will continue, and I don't think there's any doubt about that. When they will restart with what kind of force, what they will target, we don't know. And that's the big question even the White House is waiting to see is how these deter if they slow them down. Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv will continue to check in with you. For more on how this retaliation went down, I want to bring in retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. And Colonel, obviously the Pentagon here, as you just heard from Oren in his report, talking about what they hit, command and control ops, intelligence centers, supply chain facilities, other of key locations. But what can you tell us about where they struck and just how active the militias are in these areas? Yeah, absolutely, Caitlin. So one of the key things to think about here is where this actually happened. And this is the Euphrates River right here. It is during in this valley in Syria that most of the attacks occurred. Uh, Right here, the border crossing at Al-Qaim between Iraq and Syria was also a place where uh, the attacks occurred. And then uh, the Euphrates continues into here. All of these areas are basically places where these militias operate. And they also operate in areas of Western Iraq right here and some in the Northwest, as well as in other parts of the country of Iraq. But because they're doing all of this, uh, these areas become so important from a military standpoint because what they're doing is they're taking out all of these different nodes, like you mentioned and Oren mentioned in his report, the command and control nodes, the logistics areas, all of that, because this is the main supply route for these militias to get the stuff that they need to do their work from Iran. And that's why these areas are so important from a military perspective. The B-1 bombers that flew all the way from Texas, uh, I should know, it seems to be a kind of a show of force from the U.S. because obviously there's carriers in the region, but they use these B-1 bombers. 
It's a 6,000-mile nonstop flight. Can you just kind of walk us through how the U.S. carried this out? Yeah, so this, the B-1 bomber is a, a, an aircraft that is capable of flying nonstop with refueling, and it can do that to any point in the globe. So that makes it an important, uh, really uh, strategic asset for the United States. And these bombers have done missions like this before. The first time the B-1 flew in combat was actually in 1998 for Operation Desert Fox, which was also done here in the Middle East. But the key thing for this particular operation was they were able to fly nonstop from Dias Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas, all the way to Syria and Iraq. And they were able to do this uh, because they had the capabilities. And of course, they also have the weapons on board to do the kind of things that they need to do in order to really go after those 85 targets that were hit today. Colonel Cedric Layton, glad to always have you here, uh, but especially on a night like tonight. Thank you for that. Also joining me here is the retired four-star Navy Admiral William Fallon, who is the former head of U.S. Central Command, and it's great to have you here as well, Admiral, because when we look at this response, uh, you know, obviously it's sent as a message from the White House that they say is just the beginning. Do you think the first round sends a strong enough message in your view? Well, Caitlin, I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head. It's the first round. This is the opening salvo of what I expect is going to go on for some time, and uh, that message has already come out of the White House. In my view, there are really uh, three, at least three different levels of activity and intention here. First is uh, the strikes today, retaliation, retaliation to strike back at the perpetrators of uh, the, that caused the death of our soldiers and other activities. Uh, the second thing is to uh, attempt to deter <clears throat> further attacks. Third thing, and I think most important is to send a message to Iran, because there's no doubt that Iran's behind all of this activity. They coordinate it, they arm it, they fund it, and they encourage it. And so at the end of the day, the real objective in my mind is to get a message to Iran, and we've had enough of it, and it's got to stop. Well, on your second point about deterring the attacks, I mean, that's really the main question. Does it stop the attacks on U.S. forces? Uh, We'll see. My sense is that uh, it's going to be really hard. So these, uh, first of all, the Iran-U.S. dynamic has been one of uh, mutual distrust and enmity for four decades. Iran is well entrenched all over this region. They've got proxies, they've been doing their bidding for quite a long time. We're going to have to figure out how to get the message to Iran. They've got to stop. So I, I view this activity today as uh, chasing rats in the sewers. So you got a big spread out. By the way, remember, this is a 1,500-mile piece of territory from the Levant, Mediterranean, all the way down to Yemen. And I note there were strikes earlier today in Yemen as well. So it's a, a large territory. So you got these rats, if you would, these uh, proxies that are coming up and uh, nipping at us here and there. Iran has been slowly but surely escalating this. So we're going to have to not only take care of the rats, but we're going to have to get back to the source of this, and that's Iran. What does that look like? Well, I I mean, what if this doesn't deter them? Well, I think then we have to look in in a broader sense, and I would hope that's going on right now. So we have the military escalation that's underway. How long, how far, how much remains to be seen. I think there's some other things that we might want to take a look at with Iran. 
and that is take a real hard look at the sanctions that we have and see how we're actually enforcing them or not. I get the feeling that we're kind of maybe not being as tough as we say we are with that. And I note that Iran, for example, continues to export oil. Uh, they're cranking out four and a half million barrels a day. That's a lot of oil. And guess where most of it's going? To China, like probably 90% of it. So this whole business is connected. Iran, Russia, China, the countries of the region, and the U.S. is in the middle of it. And uh, we're now standing up, and I think we have to be prepared, and hopefully we've thought through some of the follow-on steps that we can get these folks in Tehran to understand we're just not going to continue to tolerate it. You said two things that, that really stood out to me. One, you, you talked about how long this could go on for. How long do you mm-hmm. think this, this could go on for? Well, I, I have no idea how long they have these initial strikes planned. I would suspect they have a number of days and nights, and uh, they're going to assess and see what we've done, uh, what our folks have been able to accomplish. And, uh, and then I'm sure they have a, a list. Mm-hmm. Back in, in my day, we'd have a list of things you wanted to accomplish. We'd check it off, see how we're doing. If we're not there, we'd try to finish the list. Secretary Esper. And, and the then other- we're going to have to stand back and see if this has actually had any effect. Yeah. And when you when you look at that, you know, part of the options and some of what lawmakers were calling for, some of them at least, were right. striking actually inside Iran. Is that something that you think would need to be on the table if they're not deterred by this? Well, I think uh, whether it's on the table in fact or in messaging, uh, I think the message needs to be there that if Iran doesn't stop this stuff, that we are likely to continue to escalate in ways that make sense. We're not looking for another war in the Middle East by any means. But the message has to get there. And by the way, there's a lot of Iranian stuff, if you would, and without being uh, calling things out specifically, there are things that I think we could do uh, that might get, help get that message across. But I suspect it's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. This isn't going to be a one-time mm-hmm. shot. It's going to take a while. And uh, hopefully we've got a, a plan uh, with the administration to see how we do, and if it's not getting you, there, to be able to... What are those things, though, that you, that you think would be effective? So, again, if we go back and look, so the military strikes will do what they do. Um, it appears right now that we're... Con- the initial strikes just in the three countries you mentioned. Uh, I doubt we would go and strike Iran directly, but, but there are other things we might be able to do that could get to Iran uh, that might help them get the message. And again, back, I think we need to relook at some of the things that we've said we're doing and see if we're really being effective in those in the way of sanctions and uh, in other activities. Admiral, uh, it was great to have you tonight. And as we do see what the aftermath of this looks like, we'll be sure to have you back. Thanks for being here on The Source. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks. And coming up tonight, we also have a former CIA officer who spent 20 years in this region on what he thinks could be next. Plus, we also have major news tonight about one of Donald Trump's federal trials with a big date now open on his and really everybody's calendar. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Back to our breaking story tonight. As President Biden is delivering on his vow from earlier this week to forcefully respond to Iran-backed militia groups responsible for the deaths of three U.S. soldiers in that deadly drone attack in Jordan. A short time ago, the U.S. carried out a series of military strikes at seven sites in Iraq and in Syria. The White House says that this is just the beginning of their response. We have CNN's Alex Marquardt in Washington tracking all of it. I mean, Alex, given what we heard from officials uh, once these strikes had been conducted, that they do believe they were successful, how exactly are they gauging success? Well, really in two different ways, Caitlin. The first is that they say they hit what they intended to. The director of the the Joint Chiefs said that the targets that they laid out, uh, that those were hit. Seven facilities in Iraq and Syria, uh, not just Iran-backed groups, but facilities that are connected to Iran's uh, IRGC and and the Quds Force. Uh, The Pentagon said that the targets that they laid out, they had an expectation that there would be casualties. Um, The Pentagon hasn't confirmed yet that there are casualties, but we know from Syrian state media uh, that there were deaths reported in, in Syria. And and so, of course, this is in in response uh, to that strike on Sunday that left three American service members dead. Uh, The second way that they think this is a success is they think they sent a very strong message. You have 85 different targets that were hit, uh, not with jets uh, from the Middle East that were based out there, F-15s, F-16s. This was, um, as you were just speaking with Colonel Layton about, uh, done with B-1 bombers that were flown over from the United States all that way with some 24 cruise missiles on board each. So that sends a very strong message. But of course, Caitlin, the real test of whether this was a, a success is if Iran is, in, is deterred in the end. Will they be after tonight? Almost certainly not, but we know that this isn't going to be the end of it. Uh, There is an expectation that there will be more strikes like this in eastern Syria, in western Iraq, perhaps against logistics lines coming from Iran uh, into Iraq. The U.S. could step up their strikes uh, in the Red Sea against the the Houthis. We could see uh, cyber attacks. So there is an expectation that this will continue. And the big question is, will Iran, will those groups be deterred? This is far from over, Caitlin. Yeah, that is the main question. Alex Marquardt, great reporting. Thank you for that. Also joining us tonight is Bob Bayer, who spent 21 years as a CIA officer in the Middle East. He wrote the book, The Devil We Know, dealing with the new Iranian superpower. And Bob, I mean, just few people have your level of knowledge on the region, the militias that are operating uh, like you do. Do you think that the first round of strikes, from what we know, and that could change as obviously morning comes and we, we learn a little bit more, but do you think it's enough to, to deter these groups? No, I don't think it's a decisive attack. I think the uh, it was very accurate. The B-1 bombers, cruise missiles, very, very accurate. They hit what they were shooting at. The problem is the last couple of days, these forces have been dispersing personnel and ammunition, weapons, and the rest of it. So they were preparing for this attack. I, I think mainly that this attack will serve as a message to Tehran is that we are willing to escalate if they keep attacking our forces in the Middle East. And we have forces in Iraq, Jordan, uh, and, and everywhere else. So, yes, I think it's a strong message. And let's see what the Iranians do. But I, what I'm afraid of, is, Caitlin, is this is going to escalate the war across the Middle East. The Iranians are determined to project power from Yemen to Lebanon to Syria to Iraq, right across what we call the Shia Crescent. How does the U.S. hurt Iran and thread that needle? I mean, is it cyber attacks like Alex just mentioned? 
Is it more of these strikes on the proxies they direct, or is it direct strikes inside of Iran, like some Republicans think? I mean, how do you hurt Iran? Well, we could hurt Iran. Uh, it has a very relatively weak army, which we could easily beat. But attacking Iran, they have asymmetrical warfare capabilities. In particular, they can take out the, the Gulf's oil facilities. We're talking about 30% of the world's reserves. They could close it down in 24 hours with missiles. They hit Abqaiq, a Saudi facility in 2015. It was a very accurate attack, very damaging. So uh, if, if we get into an escalation, this is going to get really ugly. It, it kind of feels like we're in that escalation. I mean, with this, this is obviously an escalation in and of itself. But how do we know, uh, as the U.S. is inching closer, how do we know when, when that's happened? Well, one thing is the Iraqis, some of the positions we hit, the Iraqis are describing as almost their National Guard positions, the Hash al-Shabi is what they call it. So are the Iraqis going to throw us out of Iraq? Um, I don't know that they are, but they're certainly complaining a lot. There's nothing the Syrian government can do. And the Iranians are continuing to, to supply Hezbollah and encouraging it to attack northern Israel. Uh, I think what the escalation would look like is if Lebanon is drawn into this war, into this war very seriously. And you believe all of this goes back to, to what we're watching happening in Gaza? Oh, absolutely. The Iranians are lied with Hamas. It, Hamas could exist without the Iranians, but the Iranians are definitely behind them. And I think the Iranians look at this as a great opportunity to spread their influence across the Middle East the Gulf, Yemen, everywhere else. And right now they are looking like, as I wrote in my book, a superpower, at least in the Middle East. Bob Baer, I have a feeling we're going to be talking a lot. Thanks for coming on tonight and joining us. And on a solemn note, just hours before these strikes happened, the remains of those three Army reservists who were killed in the deadly drone strike in Jordan were returned to the United States. Under a somber gray sky, President Biden, the First Lady, top Pentagon leaders, stood silently in the receiving line for the dignified transfer at Dover Air Force Base. With their hands over their hearts or raised in salute, they stood as those flag-draped cases of Sergeants William Rivers, Kennedy Sanders, and Brianna Moffitt were ceremonially, mo ceremonially moved from a plane to a waiting vehicle. Beforehand, the president, I should note, met with their grieving families in a private room, for President Biden, this now marks the second dignified transfer of his presidency. Tonight, Donald Trump has succeeded in pushing back his federal trial for trying to overturn the 2020 election, at least for now. Right now, it will no longer begin a month from now as it was slated to on March 4th. That's because we're still waiting for that appeals court to rule on his claim that he had absolute immunity as president meaning that right now it remains unclear when that trial will begin. I'm joined tonight by an attorney who knows what it's like to defend Donald Trump in a federal criminal case, Jim Trusty, who is no longer on the legal team, I should note, just for our viewers who haven't seen you here before. I just wonder if this, you know, it, it seems like it's exactly what Trump's legal team wanted, a delay. Well, it is, but you have to really go back and recognize that the March trial date, the Super Monday trial date was really a kind of arbitrary creation. Jack Smith pushing for what he called a speedy trial right, which makes almost no sense. It's a defendant's right. 
And the trial judge accommodating that and saying that she had no interest in hearing about conflicting schedules. So when the case went to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals on the immunity issue, Jack couldn't even wait for that. He asked for the Supreme Court to jump in on an expedited basis. And I think it kind of played out like too clever by a half. So now, you know, they're they're stuck with the fact that the Supreme Court is going to rule on this eventually, but it won't be on a speedy basis. Well, we don't know yet about the Supreme Court because right now we're still waiting to hear from from this appeals court on that argument about immunity. And I should note, you know, it's not just Jack Smith because you're right. The judge, Judge Chuck in here, had agreed and was the one who set that that March date. But on the appeals uh, court, why do you think it's taking so long for them to issue the ruling on the immunity claim? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I, like most lawyers, I'd go poor if I bet on every prediction of an appellate court and their timing. Uh, I, I don't think it's particularly slow, though. Oral argument was not that long ago, and these are pretty weighty issues, pretty thorny issues. I think it was a pretty hot bench for President Trump's lawyer, so I don't expect that that full immunity is going to get a whole lot of love from the panel. Uh, but I'm sure they're taking their time hashing it out, writing a very reasoned opinion and recognizing, as I do, that I think the odds are very strong that the case goes right up to the Supreme Court. Well, so once they a technical issue, though, that, that could be actually really important is once they do rule, which you think will be against him based on, on what we heard. Do you believe Judge Chutkin will then try to actually move forward with this, you know, set a trial date, have the motions being filed again, request out for jurors, start what would you know be happening right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and a hard one to answer. I mean, for the moment, she just entered a minute order, which means there wasn't some sort of hearing. And she just announced that all scheduling was suspended because of the current appeal. Uh, you know, I think that most likely it's going to stay that way until the Supreme Court either accepts or denies cert. Obviously, if they deny certiorari and say we're not going to hear the case, which I just can't foresee happening in something this important, you know, then she could just bring the parties together and jump right on and try to have a case, you know, go to trial in the summer or fall. But uh, again, realistically, with the the first bite at the Supreme Court landing with such a thud in terms of expedition, I think they're going to be on their regular briefing schedule. Mm -hmm. We're months away. And I think it would be fairly foolish to set a trial date knowing that they're taking the case. As of today, do you think it's more or less likely that none of his federal cases go to trial before the election? Well, I think it's certainly less likely because the one that was shaping up as a definite, you know, or at least close to a definite was January 6th because of the insistence of the trial court that, you know, we're going to get this done. I think that the approach in Florida, which a lot of people try to say is partisan and somehow she's favoring President Trump, it's actually much more typical for federal practice. She's taking a very incremental approach and it's complicated by the delays that happen with classified information. There's a whole long procedure that usually adds a year to any case just to sift through how classified material is going to be used at trial. She's basically said, let's come back in March and see where discovery is, see how the classified stuff is going, and then we'll talk about setting a trial date. And we'll consider the calendars of the attorneys, which in my experience is much more typical than just announcing, here's the date, clear your books and be there when I tell you to. So I, I think that the Florida case is probably drifting towards after the election, but not surprisingly based on the uh, the SIPA, the classified information component that really dictates yeah. a pretty slow process. But I should note, it, it's not just people who, you know, are, are, are complaining, saying she's partisan. She also had bungled some things up front that, that uh, you know, nonpartisan lawyers said that, that she had made mistakes on. But I, I do want to ask you just overall Trump's legal team. We just found out, you know, that he spent $50 million 
on legal expenses just last year uh, alone. You know, he had the $83.3 million verdict from that jury on Friday. He's had a lot of verdicts uh, going against him. Do you think that he's getting his money's worth or or I guess I should say his donors, since that's where the, the money's coming from? That was, that was a great roundabout way to get me to comment on the other attorneys. And, you know, as you know, Caitlin, I'm not not one I to do that. I thought it was pretty direct, um, actually. Look, it, it, well, it took a while, but it was I, I figured out where you were going. I mean, look, the bottom line is, you know, th- these are unprecedented times. I, I think it's a, a very bad sign and a common one between all these types of cases, even even some of the civil ones, that there's a measure of creativity in the charging or in the civil complaint. And, you know, when we're talking about a former president, no matter what you think of him and a, and a presidential candidate who's leading the administration, when you take all that, we should have very thoughtful, transparent, predictable behavior by prosecutors and by plaintiffs, meaning they, should, they shouldn't they should have a political calculus. They should be saying, this is about justice. We're going to be transparent. We're going to be patient. And that's not what we're seeing with Jack Smith. We're seeing all sorts of irregularities out of Georgia, and we're seeing all sorts of irregularities out of the, the Michael Cohen case with Alvin Bragg. So, well, Jack you know, Smith, though, as a, you know, is bribery is or something. Florida, the documents case and this case, and these cases were started long before Trump was running for office again and before he was the Republican frontrunner. The reporting was that he actually declared that he well, was running in part because of his legal troubles. Well, look, you, you can also say it's just going after a former president, like strip away the impact on a current election. I would want prosecutors, and I was a prosecutor for 27 years, I would want them to be very circumspect, thoughtful, fair, transparent when it comes to going after somebody that was president of the United States, whether or not they run. And I think there's a lot of open questions about whether Jack Smith insisting on a trial the day before Super Tuesday, uh, you know, attorneys accused of essentially blackmailing defense attorneys in the Mar-a-Lago case. There's a lot of stuff to sift through that history may not be real kind to. Yeah, we've talked about your blackmailing claim here before. And of course, that was a, a that March date is one that the judge here set. Jim Trusty, though, great to have you. Thanks for joining tonight. And I'm also joined tonight by a former federal prosecutor, Christy Greenberg. I wonder what you make of what you heard from from Jim Trusty on the sense of, I mean, he said it's looking less likely that, that any of these cases happen now before the election. So I think in terms of the federal cases, I do still hold out hope that the D.C. case happens before the election, the classified documents case. I don't think so. And not necessarily because Judge Cannon is biased. She's also a very new judge. Um, yeah, it's you know, relatively trial. Yeah, she's relatively inexperienced. And so I'm not sure she wants all of the scrutiny of a trial before, particularly before the election. Um, but as to the federal case in D.C., I do still hold out hope that that could happen. I think right now what you're seeing in the appeals court Clearly, there may be some dissension. It's a three-judge panel. You have one of those judges, Judge Henderson, who actually was against expediting the appeal. Um, and so she has the most seniority. She can decide she wants to write the opinion, and yeah. she can take her sweet time drafting it. And the oral argument suggested that there were some questions. You know, what is the legal standard? It's not going to be absolute immunity. I don't think any of them agreed with that. But will it be something short of that, outer duties or um, something narrower? It seemed like they were wrestling with what the legal standard would be. Yeah. And now we're waiting to see, of course, not just that. You heard him mention Georgia. We're waiting to see what happens there as we just got that first formal response from Fonnie Willis today. We'll see what the judge decides. Christy Greenberg, thanks for coming in tonight.
Up next, a story about a fit of rage with the former president in that case where we're talking about the $83.3 million verdict, apparently throwing papers across a table, storming off during a lunch. The other side of that table was Eugene Carroll's attorney, who is now speaking out. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The attorney who just defeated Donald Trump to the tune of $83.3 million is now speaking out about what happened behind the scenes, including a moment that sent the former president into a fit of rage. Roberta Kaplan was representing E. Jean Carroll in her defamation trial that ended last Friday. And during the lead up to that trial, Trump sat with her legal team for a deposition at Mar-a-Lago. I'll let Kaplan explain what happened when it came time for lunch. And you could kind of see the the wheel spinning in his brain. You could really almost see it. And he said, well, you're here at Mar-a-Lago. What do you think you're going to do for lunch? Where are you going to get lunch? And so I said to him, well, you know, I, I raised this question with your attorneys yesterday, sir. And they graciously offered to provide us with lunch. At which point there was a huge pile of documents, exhibits sitting in front of him. And he took the pile and he just threw it across the table. That was on the podcast. George Conway explains it all. And I'm joined now by George Conway. So please explain it all for us. Well, I I can't really explain it because I've never heard of anything like that before. It is a very common practice that when you are hosting a deposition, uh, your counsel provides lunch for everyone else and they provide lunch in a usually in a separate conference room so that that both sides can have uh, confidential conversations. And in this particular instance, uh, the the deposition was held at Mar-a-Lago for Donald Trump's convenience. So it would have been perfectly understandable and was perfectly understandable that Alina Haba and the team of lawyers representing Trump ordered lunch for their adversaries. The same courtesy would be extended if if the shoe were on the other foot. And he went bananas because of that. And he started screaming, as as Robbie Kaplan describes, he, he was screaming at Alina Haba. Tough client there. There was this other moment as I was listening to this whole conversation, and it's obviously not just getting my attention, but also everyone else's. I want people to to just listen to that. We come in the room and I say, I'm done asking questions. And immediately I hear from the other side, off the record, off the record, off the record. Um, So they must have planned it. And he looks at me from across the table and he says, see you next Tuesday. You could tell they was like, it was like a kind of a joke again, like teenage boys would come up with. Yeah, but again, no, that, that is a teenage boy joke. level joke. Okay, George, this is cable, but yeah, I, I'm not going to spell it out. But but I mean, what did you think when you were sitting there listening to that? I mean, it, it's just appalling. I mean, he's a pig, and the fact that he was president of the United States makes it all the more. Uh, distressing. I mean, it was misogynistic. I mean, it's, it's a call a woman that to her face and and trying to be cute about it. I mean, 
it, it was just disgraceful and, and, and the kind of, of indecent conduct that you wouldn't expect in any adult. I mean, it was just, I, I wouldn't even say it was teenage boy level conduct. It was just utterly, utterly childish. And, it, you know, it's not that surprising that Trump does this. I mean, we've, we know, we've seen him do all sorts of crude and uh, uh, things over time. And I, it brought to mind this incident that occurred in the Roosevelt Room, I think it was, in, in the fall of 2019, where Donald Trump was congratulating a pair of female astronauts who had conducted an EVA, a, a spacewalk outside the space shuttle, and it was the first all-female EVA. And Trump made a mistake. He said, oh, this is the first time a woman's ever been outside the space shuttle. And then the astronaut, the female astronaut, gently corrected him, and he clearly was taken aback. It was a very gentle, very respectful correction. And he starts to, to touch his forehead as if to scratch an itch, but he used his middle finger. And, and there was this huge controversy. What, was he really giving the finger to these astronauts? And people gave him the benefit of the doubt. But I, I find it hard to give him the benefit of the doubt after seeing all of this conduct. George Conway, it was a, a fascinating conversation and to hear from her on the behind the scenes. Uh, thank you for coming on. Again, you. you are now a source regular. Thanks for coming on tonight. <laughs> Happy to be here. Also tonight, we're following another court case. This is the fate of Jennifer Crumbly. She is the mother of that Michigan school shooter. Tonight, her fate is in the hands of a jury. After a rather bizarre day of closing arguments, you've really got to hear what her attorney was saying here. That's next. A historic case has now reached its final phase as the jury is going to start deliberating come Monday in the manslaughter trial for Jennifer Crumbly. Her son Ethan shot and killed four students at his Michigan high school back in 2021 using a gun that his parents had given him for Christmas. She is the first parent to stand trial on charges seeking to imprison her over her kids' school shooting, making it so historic. In the closing arguments today, her defense attorney acknowledged that a guilty verdict would set a dangerous precedent for parents, and she also told the jury that she is human and flawed, just like her client. I will openly admit that I'm a lawyer who messes up. I'm lucky if I'm fit for human contact. I'm lucky if I've taken a true shower and didn't just grab a handful of wipes and scrub off the best I can on my way running out the door. Actually, I have an oopsie baby, my fourth one. I did not want four in four years, but that's what I was blessed with. I have a large butcher block on my counter with big knives that I use when I cook, and I enjoy cooking. And at the end of the day, my kids could just as easily grab a knife without me knowing it. Here tonight, attorney and legal affairs analyst Ariva Martin. Ariva, I wonder what you made of that closing argument. Yeah, Caitlin, it did not resonate with me, and I would be surprised if it resonated with jurors. I understood what she was trying to do. She was trying to say, look, this could be 
you know, any one of you. We are all human. We all make mistakes. There are no perfect parents. Don't uh, find her guilty because she is a mother that has made mistakes. But what was missing from this argument are the facts of this case. This is not a case of someone that has to use wipes because they don't have time for a shower. This is a mother that had clear opportunities to prevent her son from committing these murders. She had the warning signs, big red warning signs, and she ignored them. And I think the jurors are going to be smart enough to distinguish between a busy working lawyer that has four kids and a mother of one child where the evidence has shown that she has spent more time with horses and perhaps with a boyfriend or trying to find a boyfriend on an online app than she did taking care of her child. So I, I got what the uh, you know, motivation was behind this kind of argument, but I think it fell short. What did you make of the cross-examination that started out this morning? And they were kind of trying to make that point that she wasn't responding to her son's text. She wasn't answering his calls when he was saying, you know, please call me back. Please text me back. What did you make of, of how effective that was? I think the, uh, Caitlin, the prosecutor made some good points. I was surprised that the uh, cross-examination was so short. I think there were some missed opportunities. I think he could have, uh, you know, delved a lot more into some of the issues in this case, particularly the meeting in that office. I think a lot of parents are going to find what Jennifer did at that school meeting very troubling. She's in that meeting for only 11 minutes or so. She doesn't embrace, doesn't uh, engage with her son. And I'm just sitting here thinking, if, if a school shows you this very disturbing picture that your son has drawn, you don't then say to the school, there's a gun that we purchased as a gift for Christmas. Uh, there's a gun that I don't personally know where the key is. I don't know where the gun is, according to her. And even to say to her son, son, this is troubling. Tr son, do you need some help? Even though she you know, tried to make this argument that the school told her he was okay and he could return to his classroom, I think jurors are going to have a really hard time with that. And I think the prosecution uh, did a good job of juxtaposing uh, you know, her statements about being this hyper-vigilant, involved mom and what she actually did on that day. What's your prediction on how long it would take the jury to reach a verdict? You know, it's always uh, difficult to know, uh, mm -hmm. Caitlin, how long jurors will take. Uh, there's This isn't a case, though, with a ton of evidence. This was supposed to be a two- to three-week trial. It was much faster uh, than anyone expected. There were no witnesses called by the defense other than Jennifer herself. So uh, it could be two hours. It could be a couple of days. We'll wait to see on Monday. Ariva Martin, thank you so much. Thanks, Caitlin. Ahead tonight, remember, remembering the beloved actor Carl Weathers, the star of four Rocky films, and so much more. He's hooked. He's hooked. Damn, Rod, come on. What's the matter with you? Tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. The legendary actor Carl Weathers has died at the age of 76. He passed away peacefully at his home on Thursday, according to his manager. He came to fame as Apollo Creed, the fast-talking, hard-hitting, nemesis-turned-ally in the Rocky movies. His co-star, Sylvester Stallone, who you saw there, shared this tribute to his longtime friend tonight. He was magic. And I was so fortunate to be part of his life. So, Apollo, keep punch. I should note Weathers also found plenty of comic relief in his career, notably 
is Adam Sandler's alligator-hating golf instructor Chubbs in Happy Gilmore. Adam Sandler posted this message on Instagram, remembering him as a true great man, a great dad, a great actor, a great athlete, loved his entire family, and Carl will always be known as a true legend. That he certainly will, and we're thinking of his family tonight. Also tonight, as we were in break, and the story we started out with, this is brand new video coming from the Pentagon tonight of those B-1 bombers taking off from Texas for the strikes tonight in the Middle East. Much more on what you are seeing here and this breaking news with CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.